Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. This episode, we're proud to be sponsored by Curzon Home Cinemas and the brand new film, Nonfiction, a comedy about the publishing industry starring Juliette Binoche. If you love reading, you'll love watching this. And we'll have more details about that in the middle of the show. For now, I'm Daisy Buchanan, your book inspector and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shaped me. Firstly, I'm thrilled to tell you that one of my all-time favourite writers has a brand new book coming out soon. It's a fabulously funny poetry book, Painfully British Haikus by Dale Shaw. Yep, that is our very own producer Dale, published by Michael Joseph. It's coming on the 14th of November and it's now available for pre-order. You can enjoy pieces like bunting. Bunting indicates something fun is taking place, but nothing too fun. It's a time when everything about being British can feel excruciatingly painful, so let the joke soothe the hurt away. I think this is also perfect for awkward Christmas dinner conversations, when that uncle starts to make that xenophobic speech. Whip out your haikus and let the laughter begin! This week's guest is, I suspect, the person everyone would love to have around their Christmas dinner table, the historian, broadcaster and author, Professor Kate Williams. Kate is a professor of history at the University of Reading. She's a New York Times bestseller and she's got something exciting to say about everything from ancient Asian literature to the latest news about Harry and Meghan. This episode was recorded live at Henley Literature Festival. Henley Lit Fest is one of my favourite places and events and I'd like to give a special shout out to the fabulous Bell Bookshop. It's one of my favourite indies with some of the best booksellers around so if you're in Henley, go say hello, give them a wave, spend lots of money. Now here's Kate. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your book inspector, and my very special guest is Professor Kate Williams. I'm sure you're all here for Kate. <laughs> Could you do an Ellen one? Turn around and do it. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do a selfie of us two. Uh, should we do, should we do that? Uh, okay, let's do it. Let's do a selfie of us and, and everyone behind us. Live on the, on the podcast, you can hear a live selfie. selfie. <laughs> can we get everybody in? Uh, if everyone, anyone I think if we crouch and everyone waves, yeah. <laughs>
think we've got everyone. Oh, there we are. Oh, we've got hey, oh. we higher. Yeah, I reckon we've got it. Yeah. Let's go right forward. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> no, that wasn't. Yeah. Now, I know you're all here for Kate. I'm sure very well acquainted with her work, but she is a broadcaster, historian, and author, and an avid reader. So usually this podcast will take place in our guests' homes beside their bookshelves. So Kate, I'm going to ask you to paint us a picture. Um, if uh, we were in the room of books or a room where books are in your house at the moment, where would, we, where would we be and what could we see? Well, of course, this is my home, this wonderful panelled wooden room, <laughs> and next door to the mayor's dressing room. This is all my home. Is that um, one of your relatives? Oh, yes, there? it is. Yes, the queen. That's, that's my, my, one of my relatives. And, you know, these are my watercolours on the wall. Well, I'm just so thrilled to be on the podcast. I'm such a huge fan of the podcast. She's such a huge fan of Daisy. And, um, you know, I was also just asking her why on Twitter she's not Roller Girl, and I've learned that. So uh, that, but I've learned everything. So I'm really excited to be here and yes I'm a very keen reader so um, I have well the house has got books everywhere they're just everywhere it's just it's just terrible and indeed uh, I had a I, we live in a house now but I used to have a flat and when I was trying to sell it the estate agent just said to me um, all these have got to go all these have got to go all my books he said that you replace them with small pots of potpourri, otherwise this place is not going to sell. <laughs> so I took all the books off, gave them to my parents, bung them in my parents' house, and put yeah bo boxes of potpourri on the uh, bookshelf. But at the moment, it's my it's not going to sell it. So, so downstairs in the sitting room, I have my desk, and there's books behind me, lots of ones I'm reading at the moment, lots of ones I'm using my current book. Um, that we, we copies of uh, my own try to keep my own copies of my own books on shelves and all the foreign editions. That's uh, so nine books and different editions and on the shelves. And then uh, I've got some in the bedroom as well. Quite a lot in there. Some of my old favourites. And then upstairs we have a room which is supposed to be the guest room. Which um, I'm glad that you don't can't see a picture of it because <laughs> the guests can barely get in. There's books on the wall, bookshelves, and piles of books everywhere, all around the room. And we've had clearouts, and it's just getting worse. So, so there's just books um, everywhere, and I am guilty of that terrible thing of I'm sure you're all too organised for this, ladies and gentlemen, of buying a double of a book I already have because I can't find it. So yes, <laughs> I, when I I used to have a very organised system, but now they've just we just got them everywhere, everywhere. But I just can't stop, and then I just keep buying them and reading them and buying more books and going to the library, and I just can't stop. You're an addict, but it's okay. Yes, it's a safe space. I'm an addict. I'm an addict. Um, something that I loved reading was a piece you wrote about the stash of filthy books in the British Library. And lots of our guests have a particular book they read as a teen or a preteen that was something that was hidden from parents or teachers or passed around at school. Was there anything like that that defined your early reading life? My early reading life? Yes, I think we did pass around sort of Jackie Collins when I was younger and, and sort of stashed them between us, uh, yes, I think they were, but of course, you know, no one ever read, you know, Jackie's a, you know, great, a great writer. We never read, read, the, read the book. It was just short <laughs> sections. Someone steal from someone's mum's bookshelf or something. Yes. Yes. It was, and, um, and of course, you know, Judy Bloom was a terrible, great, you know, such a huge author for, you know, the, and um, forever. We all read forever. And are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. And these 
wonderful books. But you know, I um, you know, I can remember the first book I read, or at least the first book that had an impact on me. And that was when I was at nursery school. So I think I must have been about three or something. I mean, I thought it was reading, reading. But um, it was about, it was a picture book, and it was about this ant, and it's always stayed with me. I, you know, you read these fascinating books about how to write a novel, you know, the initiating stunt and how, all the rest of it, and I think it had it all. And it was about this ant. And the first picture showed the ant walking along in the forest. Second picture showed the ant discovering a giant apple. And the third picture shows the ant deciding to t invite all its friends to an ant banquet. And the ant goes and really prepares and goes and gets cutlery and, and napkins and all the rest of it and organizes everything. And then when the poor ant goes back to the apple, its chums have all eaten it anyway. Oh, no. I know. I know. It was the most heartbreaking story. I mean, honestly, you know, I know that there's... A, I mean, that's a Laurie Moore book. It was amazing. I mean, I can't... I, I should tweet, actually, and say, anyone remember this book? And I, I just remember this at nursery, and I was just... I, I've never forgotten it, and I'm not quite sure. It might be my first memory. I'm not... I've got a memory of my mum being pregnant, and I think that was slightly later... So I think this could be my first memory, is reading the ant book. And I was so heartbroken on account of the ant, you know. And was, so was that the end? There was no happy ending for the ant? It no, was that was the it. Gone he just, the ant was just looking at the, at the apple call. <laughs> I can feel my eyes prickling. It's, and, I mean, I, I, maybe I have inherited that because I, it, if anyone who knows me, you'll, I'm always eating an apple and, and don't wait. So maybe that's it. <laughs> <laughs> See what I eat it. <laughs> yes. But I was heartbroken for the poor ant. So um, as a novelist, book, this very remember. pure form of storytelling where there is not necessarily a happy words, ending. Yeah. It's been distilled. Yes. Yes. I mean, yes. Where's that happy ending? I, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that I can really remember. And I was a keen book lover as a child. I love so many, you know, books. Well, I understand I that stop. the opposite of the ant was when you were studying for your PhD that you tried to read the longest book written in every language. Yes, well, I, I did. That was my mission as a PhD student. I don't think I read as much as I could have done as an undergraduate. I don't know. I found it quite a difficult period. I think, it's, it's, I, don't, I think now there's lots of amazing YA, but I think when I was younger, there was a period for me when I was sort of you know, kind of 15 to 18, in which, you know, uh, you know, you're too old for children's books, but you're too, you're too I thought I was, you're too young for real adult books. Mm. Yes, you understand the language, but things like Jane Austen, well, you know, truly, truly searingly brilliant, but for a 17-year-old, do you really understand the whole case of collaboration, of compromise, and the fact that, you know, that Jane Austen, as a teenager, I was as idealistic as all teenagers are. And I, didn't, I don't think I read as much as I should have done as an undergraduate. But then as a, on my year off in a postgrad, I read a lot. And then as a PhD student, I decided I was going to read um, the longest books in every language in translation. So I read Clarissa, I think. It's, what is, you know, it's arguable what is the longest one in English, but I think Clarissa is, so, Clarissa is, a, is a big one. I, I did a, an English degree, just a BA. I know nothing about Clarissa it's other amazing. than the fact that it it's is a lot of bloody words. long. I, think it's, I mean, I think it's a million words in Clarissa, and my copy by the end was ripped into three parts. But I do. So what's love it about? It. What happens? What's it about? Um, it is about uh, Richardson's Clarissa. So Richardson writes his first book, Pamela, about a servant girl 
who uh, the master, it's all very me too, the master tries to assault her, she won't have it. She keeps resisting him and, and, and standing up for herself, and eventually he marries her. And then Richardson writes a very boring sequel, Pamela II, in which it's all about their happy marriage. And, it, it, well, and then there's a possible interloper, and it's very dull. Definite the, recipe for happy marriage and there, then, I And I think see. Richardson got very... Pamela was a sensation. It was a book sensation. There were every type of Pamela souvenir was produced. Fans... Um, you know, dresses, outfits, it's incredible. And Richardson, I think, wanted to really show people what would happen with a rake, a rake reformed, mm. that it couldn't, and be argued against all these people saying, oh, I can reform rakes. So Clarissa is about a young girl, a young middle class, an upper middle class heiress who is basically abducted by an aristocrat and um, assaulted by him, the uh, letter that Clarissa writes after this called Paper X is a truly brilliant piece of writing. And then, and the first third is whether or not she's going to be abducted. The second third, this is 250,000 words, 300,000 words, sorry, I can't add up. 300,000 words is about, you know, what, him imprisoning her and what, her, what's going to happen. And, he, and, and then the third... I don't know if I, this is a spoiler here, but the, the final third is her dying. So, um, yes, so yes, and she dies. And of course, but the thing was that Richardson, he was a printer. So he could, he could print his own book. And unfortunately, as we, one finds as, an, as a writer, readers don't always read your book in the way you thought they might. And the rest, most of us have to put up with it. But Richardson, Kept rewriting it to try and um, try and get the the, the 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 response he wanted. So initially, people were sympathetic to the the aristocrat, the loveless, the kidnapper, and not so much to Clarissa. So he kept writing, rewriting the book to make him badder and badder and badder, and you know, to try and <laughs> so they could stop him. People writing to him saying, "I love loveless. I want him." I'm quite jealous of him. Are you to have that? You yeah. Know, to get the critical response and say, "Hmm." I'm afraid that we all everyone who everyone just ignores the seven other. You know, I think it's seven. Uh, the, the seven editions of Clarissa and just like, yeah, the first one's the only one that matters. It's like Henry James who rewrites all his books mm. and they aren't better the second time around. They're, they're, the first four versions are second better. So, he, is it Sarah Wall who, moving way back to um, the 21st century, on Twitter was talking about how she writes a whole first draft and then, um, not Sarah Wall, what, she, she wrote Ghost Wall. What's her last name? Sarah Moss. Sarah Moss, thank you. Um, I knew, as I said, Sarah Wall on my Long list for the Women's right. Prize, which I yes. shared. Wonderful I'm book. Wonderful very book. excited to, to ask you about that. Um, but this is a great time to segue, actually, that she deletes her first draft and just writes it again from memory. Brave girl. Is anyone else wanting to clutch the side of their Brave chairs? Brave woman. No, no, no. I can't, I, I, you know, like, I just live in computer failure. But she's a, you know, she's a wonderful writer. Fantastic book. So... But, um, Short, but short. I'm very bad at writing short books, so I envy it's her. Sort of the opposite yeah. of, um, yeah, so of Richardson. These long books. Yes, and there was a, there was so many great long books. There's a great one. In, you know, you just have to repace yourself. There was a, a great one in Chinese, translated, of course, the story of the stone. And I was just saying, this is in your PhD, not the Booker Prize. <laughs> this is my sorry, not the Booker this Prize. Is the Women's fun, Prize. This is my fun. This is my fun reading, not the PhD. And um, <laughs> and you just have to pace yourself because obviously you're used to something happening in the first chapter or so but with a you know multi-volume novel it happens after the first volume and there's a, and there's a great one in um a great japanese one uh, i don't know if anyone's 
read at the tale of Genji's tale or tale of Genji, and it's fascinating because it's this 11th century um, Japanese writer, Lady Murasaki, and um, it's, it's, it's vital. It, and like so many other women writers from the past, she hasn't been forgotten. And this is because uh, at the time, only women wrote in Japanese because it was seen as the lower language. Men wrote in, the Ch in Chinese, and that was the language of the court and the language of everything, of education. And women, of course, had no access to that because they're excluded because second-class citizens. So she wrote in Japanese this wonderful novel about a, a heartthrob who just seduces his way through the court. And, um, and, and, and unlike so other women who are forgotten, she's remembered because when, when, when every Japanese, every person I've ever met who's been through the Japanese education system has read this book because it's so crucial. We, you know, when, we, when we're thinking about literature, we want to go right back and find a founding father. But of course, she's their founding mother because the people at the time, the, the great male writers were writing not in the language, not in the Japanese mm. language. So she's a fascinating story. I find that really thrilling that people will make culture and make art and produce no matter how things are stacked against them. Um, there's a book, I think, about the habits of writers. And there are lots of men mentioned who, you know, they will write between 10 and 6 and like, darling, keep the children away. I must write in silence. And then women, it was just scribbling in books and, you know, pushing notebooks under cushions and no one really taking it seriously. It's like, oh, you're, you're writing little stories, are you? Okay, I'm going to come blather on or make you make a meal for me. And I think it mm. is just so interesting, isn't it, that it's sort of, no matter what obstacles are there, it bubbles up. Yes, Maybe sometimes it bubbles up more, yes. the harder it is. Yes. Well, you, you think, we think of Austin, of course, who <laughs> was, was surrounded by people the whole time and, and yet writes, you know, the greatest books. And, and you think of greatest books in the, in, the, in the language. And you think of George Eliot, who was mm. apparently was busy reading German philosophy at the same time as making bread. I don't know if that's inspiring or depressing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to skip into the future again and ask you about the, the Women's Prize. What is that experience like? How much of a long list do you have to read? Or do you have to stay away from the books until... Oh, no, no. So I read all of them. I read, you know, it's about 150. And it's your job to call in any books that you think have been missed as well, haven't been submitted. So it's a lot of books, but it's wonderful. I mean, it's When does that come up? What, which amazing. books have you landed on and said, I think we need to consider this? Well, because obviously publishers can only submit so many books. Yeah. And so there, there are maybe books that don't get Of course, but are there any particular titles that you have thought of and thought we yeah, must Yeah, but I don't think I should say. Because, oh, I, don't, because, I, don't, because I don't think I should say which so the authors might not know. Can you say what they write with? Oh, that's, that's true. <laughs> but, but yes, I did call in quite a few and that hadn't been submitted by the publishers. I mean, that must be such a thrill for an author, though, to know that, you know, there's so. someone out there looking yeah. out for them. Yeah, but I think, I, think I, I saw it as the job of the chair. You know, it's a job to keep up with what everything, all, all the publishing. I mean, broadly, um, what are the long list titles that have really stayed with you over the years? Of all the Women's Prize. Mm, as long as you've been oh involved my with it. Goodness. Well, I'm only, I mean, I was only chair one year. So I've only, cha I only chaired it last year, and the rest of the year I've just been a hobbyist who just ah, read, reads for fun. Because it's so, so you, you only, you only chair, they only chair one year, ah. um, and then you. So as chair, you, if I chair the, the Costa uh, Book Award as well, which that you're more dealing with the shortlist, but this one 
it was about dealing with all the books and all the books and looking at them all, then, then getting a long list, then getting a short list, then getting a winner. And obviously had marvellous, you know, wonderful judges, Leila Hussain and Sarah Wood and Arifa Akbar and Dolly Alderton, you know, fantastic judges. It was a really wonderful experience. And women's fiction, you know, it's truly fantastic. So it was such a great honour to read it was these wonderful, amazing it, books. And, you know, and I think as an author, you know, you know how much it means. Mm. Uh, I mean, if, if I was to be short, long-listed for the Women's Prize, I think I would die. Uh, and someone did actually, do, you know, quite a few people were tweeting, this is the best day of my life. And you think, and I said... I mean, surely you could have just sort of put on a moustache and a hat and said, I really thought about Kate's book. I think it's very good. Could have done. Could have done. Next time. Could have done. Now, now you know where they meet next year. You can just sort of pop around the back. And yeah. Just leave this here, put it in yeah. the pile. Well, obviously, there's some bumper things for next year. Wonderful books. I mean, Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. I mean, you know, Elif Shafak, uh, you know, on, uh, is on the book prize. The book prize is 10 minutes and 38 seconds. And we've also got uh, Duck's Newbie Port. So there's a lot of great books, great books oh. for the Women's Prize next year. So, uh, I, you know, don't envy those judges. There's some fantastic, I fantastic love, books. The, the bookish shortlist is so good. And it's so wonderful. Eclectic. And I do, I just, after it was intense, I read Duck's Newbie Port, the book that is a thousand pages and one sentence long. And I loved it. And I loved the challenge of, you know, really having to kind of, raise my reading game and flex a muscle and the sort of, you know, endure. So it's weird because it was sort of meditative and anxiety inducing. But I think that's interesting that, you know, now I think you, I think it must be a very disciplined reader to read the things, the length and breadth that you have, breadth that you have. Do you think that as readers, we ought to raise our game a little bit? Do you think that modern reading can be lazy reading i mean i am a wild book addict you know i'll i'll i'll, I'll probably be you know i'll be shot because i'll be reading a book that it'll happen I something know. because i won't i won't be looking and so i'm a wild book addict and i don't, wouldn't say i'm so you get a really stop. big book and think great loads of book this will keep me going for some i do time. i do love a big book and but i love but i i you know i just I completely love to read, and I'm, I am addicted. And I'm, I'm interested by a lot of authors who say to me they don't read while they're writing because they don't want their style to be infected. And I'm afraid I'm just so addicted, and I love books so much that I can't stop. Uh, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm So how addict. do you sort of negotiate that boundary between reading for pleasure and reading for work? Because you must be reading whenever you're awake. Yeah, so well, I, you know, but I, but I, I think, but I, though it does, does blur. Some, you know, often you read. Uh, if I'm doing historical research, I read a wonderful book from the 16th century that is absolutely fantastic and, and gripping. And then you read a modern book as well. And uh, I, I think you know, there's so much imagination. It's just so wonderful to be transported in someone else's imagination just for a little while. If you could go back because I you know historically the, the sort of the periods you cover you're an expert in many many areas but do you have a particular period that you love or a period that you'd love to just take a year and really focus on well my most recent book is about Mary Queen of Scots uh, about the 16th century which I absolutely love and it's a wonderful fascinating amazing period and so gripping for queenship Mary Queen of Scots is so frequently seen as a 
failed queen is a tragic queen, but if you look at her in terms of queenship, she did everything that monarchs like Elizabeth I did and were congratulated for listening to their ministers, uh, introducing religious toleration. But unfortunately, uh, Elizabeth I, if she's undermined by her ministers, it just means that they don't go, they don't invite her to meetings and they, they sort of try and leave her out of conversations. But Mary, they try and kidnap. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, dist it's a distinction. Uh, and so that was my most recent one. But I I'm currently trying to write a book, which is very behind, and it's really behind, um, about the 18th century um, publishing industry and about some of the unknown women writers. Well, they are not unknown, but the women writers who have been left out of our canon uh, then. So I'm, I'm deep in that at the moment. So yeah. I'd love to ask you about that, but not if it's going to cause you anguish no, and no, trauma. No, so no, can we talk any more about the 18th century? Yes, well, I'm just... I mean, it was a time of... This is just before Richardson, really. This is a time when the, 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 suddenly publishing becomes an explosion of, of business. And the printing press obviously was old, but the commercialization of it really begins at this point, the early 18th century, so the post-industrial um, revolution. Addison and Lee and the, yeah. the coffee shop. And the, the coffee shop and the magazines and the tap. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you paid lots of attention to your English degree. Yes. One seminar yeah, I went to. Yeah, yeah. But then in these women authors... You know, Liza Hayward, she wrote dozens and dozens of, I'm, I'm, this Liza Hayward, she wrote dozens and dozens of books, including a book about Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've just really forgotten about her. And she's certainly in, in postgraduate courses, particularly in the US, but just not really here. So, and she's an amazing, she earned her money by her pen and she writes this sort of, well, you know, I, I just think, yeah, they're, by the bonk, some early bombbusters. They're, they're pretty wild. And then she gets very moral later on, post Richardson and writes very moralistic ones. And I'm fascinated by these early female writers and the force of their imagination. Tell us more about these bonkbusters. Well, there tends to be a handsome count and an innocent young girl. And the handsome count keeps trying to take advantage of the innocent young girl, but then something happens, like a servant enters or a door enters, and he can't, and that happens quite a lot. And then finally he realises he shouldn't be taking advantage of her, and they get married and live happily ever after. That's the basic template. So, <laughs> or sometimes so, it's like the ant. Sometimes I'm afraid he, uh, you know, he, 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 he eats her up and leaves the apple core. and then, yeah, ready. That's it. Yeah. So we need to find the 18th century term for cock blocking. The cock, yes. The cock count blocking. Count blocking. Uh, yes, I, I meant, talked a little bit about Eliza Haywood Latitude Festival with Scarlett Curtis, and she said she's the, the ultimate cock blocker. And so she said it, and you've said it. So I basically think I've got the blurb now for my book about Eliza Haywood, the ultimate cock blocker. <laughs> this is the cock blocker, says Daisy Buchanan and Scarlett Curtis. So I've got it. So uh, you uh, can have that for the cover. That yeah. was my blessing. Well, that's the, um, you know, you know, I mean, you, you, I did teach creative writing. I, I focus to just teach history, history at the moment. You know that in all these fascinating books like Save the Cat, mm. it's about your, what does your character want and how do you keep stopping them? So Eliza Hayward makes them very clear what the count wants and how he keeps being stopped. So, save doors, the cat. Doors open. That's a screenwriting book, right? It's a, it's a screenwriting book, yes, and there's also a Save the Cat writes a novel as well. Oh. So the principle is that your hero or heroine will do something like Save the Cat early on and prove that they are someone who is likeable. I've it never saved be... a cat, so I'm clearly not likeable at all. <laughs> I, I'd love to, but I never there see any need saving. Got a cat saving. at home, we can have a short recess. Yeah. Kate will save it I'll for you. I'll save the cat. 
selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Kate soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. And this week, it's not a book, it's a film about books. We love non-fiction, starring Juliette Binoche, which is out in selected cinemas on Friday, October the 18th, which is this coming Friday, if you're listening the week this episode drops on a Monday. And it will be available on Curzon Home Cinema too. Non-fiction is all about Leonard, a successful bohemian novelist, and Alain, the old friend and literary editor who riles Leonard when he turns down his latest manuscript. Alain might be out of his depths when he hires and falls for the gorgeous law, but unbeknownst to him, Leonard has been getting to know Alain's wife, Selina, a little too well. Nonfiction is chic, charming and extremely funny. It's a real treat for anyone who wants to be nosy about the publishing industry and the digital world. If you're a fan of Call My Agent on Netflix, I'm obsessed. I think you'll adore it. Of course, the only thing better than a great film might be a great film that you don't have to leave your house to watch. Curzon Home Cinema is an on-demand platform where you can watch Curzon releases the same day they're released into cinemas. Curzon believe that cinema should be accessible for everyone, so they're passionate about giving consumers the chance to pick where they watch films. Head to CurzonHomeCinema.com for more information and CurzonCinemas.com for a list of showtimes if you do feel like venturing outside when you watch nonfiction. Now, back to Kate. I guess what we want as readers probably hasn't really changed that much over several hundred years. The same kind of being titillated and being rewarded. I agree. I think rewarded. I think the rewards of plot. I think uh, the you know the rewards of story, the rewards of character. And this was really the beginning of the novels. So they really were the very earliest of novels. And as you say, they are. We still see the same now. The, the, the love story doesn't work out. Or the and there were there were they had the, the basic seduction plot got combined by other authors. So one of them combined them with. Um, 
uh, adventure stories and lustful Turks who kept popping up Ooh. as a lustful Turk. Um, the other one combined them with uh, the, the, count, the Count character would keep lecturing the heroine before he seduced her with lengthy lectures. That was the other one. <laughs> and the other one, the, the, the other author combined these seduction plots with um, religion and had a lot of erotic death scenes. Uh, which is uh, my, particularly my, one of my favourite chapters in my book about erotic death scenes. I think that yeah. that's my good subtitle. So, um, so what, what is an erotic death scene? Was it like, oh, it's okay if they have sex because the message here is sex kills? Um, well, the, it's a kind of mixture. Um, you, you, know, you, know the, you know when you go to Rome and you see those wonderful uh, statues mm. of... of saints in ecstasy that don't mm. seem to get too far from other types of ecstasy. So it's when Harry met Sally type ecstasy <laughs> at the same time as Jesus. So that, that's, you get these combinations of sort of, of, of women, am I, am I going too far? Am I going too far at Henry Mitchell to, to go, go to this? But women who are about to die having these astonishing moments of ecstasy uh, with Jesus um, just before they die. So kind of truly erotic final death moments. Yeah, so basically, this isn't going too far, but basically pre-death orgasms. Uh, that was... <laughs> key part. What a way to go! <laughs> <laughs> so maybe... So, yes, the, um, quite a lot of them... <coughs> That, that was very popular in the 18th century. I mean, I don't know whether you think, ladies and gentlemen, whether I could bring it back as a genre, you know. It was a bestseller there, could it be now, you know? Popular in literature or just popular? Um, well, uh, literature certainly, literature certainly. Uh, uh, whether or not it was a, a consoling idea that we all, that they all joined in with, but I think, you know, the, 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 the movement between spiritual ecstasy and count stimulated mm. ecstasy were, were not too far apart and you but you see it in the, in the basic love stories that it's almost like semi they're all they're you know the, the, the language of a seduction story is so often using the language of religion their bodies are elevated you know they, they, they it's transcendent so um things sort of heaving yeah, and heaving, inflated early and form of transubstantiation yeah all that sort of stuff yeah it's yes. really, really fascinating. Because yes. I know we've Will talked... we keep erotic death scenes <laughs> <laughs> from the podcast? Yes. I think that might be a whole separate podcast, <laughs> yes, erotic exactly. death scenes. Yes. Oh. I know you talked about um, all kinds of erotica in the British Library, which we might come back to, but I know you are you know, a very big advocate of the, the British Library, but... Um, what was your relationship with libraries growing up? Was there a library that you particularly loved or visited often? Well, I um, engaged my mother in uh, an act of fraud because I grew up in the Midlands and there were two libraries. Um, there was the Starbridge Library and there was the Kinver Library and we lived in between in a small village and I was at school in Kinver. Um, but really, then we joined, I got my mother to join both using our postcode. So we lived in Kinder, but we had a Starbridge postcode. Therefore, I qualified for both libraries, and therefore I went to both, and that was completely fraudulent. And my mother had to had to overlook this. So we got so that meant I got out about eleven books a week, which was absolutely marvellous. And uh, uh, my, my favourite times to get out the books. And enough to keep you going. That yes, ex exactly. So I was a library 
addict. I really was. There's How a, did you? I can't try to remember. There's the one, one that girl going to the seaside with her older cousins called the Visitors. I think that I keep trying to think about. And maybe I should tweet and ask what the it was. Visitors. Yes. Sounds like it's not Lynn Reed Banks, is oh, it? Oh, I don't know. I have to look it up. It sounds a bit like the family from One End Street books. Oh, that's their wonderful, aren't they? I loved. Yes. I think there's lots Mrs. of Muggles. getting out of the Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. East London. Kate loses her hat. Was that as a, as a Kate, was that especially traumatic? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the family at One End Street, and I loved books about magic, and I, you know, I loved Diana Wynne-Jones. I adored Crestomancy, and I loved Pollyanna, and... I love um, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim was another mm. favourite of mine. There's a story I tell. I, um, I uh, was so desperate when I was a, a little girl to to world of imagination. You know, the Midlands is a wonderful place. We live in a dormitory village, outside, you know, a very nice place. But uh, I didn't. I wanted more kind of old stuff and imagination. And um, I I made a time machine when I was about seven and out of a cardboard box that the washing machine had come in. Oh, and excellent. And covered it in pipe cleaners and stickers and that sort of thing. And made this time machine and wrote time machine on the front. Because <laughs> that's what makes it work. Yeah, that's what makes it work. And then I put my brother into it, um, <laughs> who was about five. So I put him in into the, into the box. And then I take him on journeys. I said, oh, wow, Jeff. My little brother called Jeff. Uh, oh wow! You know we're going travelling, going to Egypt. Oh look at the look at the pyramids. Look at Tutankhamun. And now we're going to Henry VIII's court. And of course, Jeff, age five, would say, "Let me out! I want to get out." And I say, "No, Jeff, you can't get out. You must not get out because then you will be stuck in Egypt and you will never return to 1980s Wolverhampton. You can't go back." Um, and after a while, like, yes, I know. Let me out. Yeah, I'll stay in Egypt. But after a while, Jeff, of course, got weary of being put in the box, and then I got in the box myself because I bought my own hype and tried to go travelling, but I never went anywhere. And uh, now I think that that's what I love about reading so much is that I get my own time machine. I get to tra- write them myself and create my own time machine. And I have to say I'm better with words than I was ever with pipe cleaners. And, uh, <laughs> and I get to, you know, read other people's. And I just think it's such an amazing uh, privilege to, 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 to be, read all these wonderful books and to live in, a, live in, you know, part of the world where there's no censorship and we can read the books we want to read. I love that. What is the last novel that transported you that way when you looked up and you really were shocked to realise oh. you were... In your world and not theirs. Oh, well, I did. Uh, I did love um, Ella Shafak's um, uh, Ten Minutes Thirty Eight Seconds in Our uh, Strange World. I thought that was a mar- on the Book of High shortlist. Um, I thought it was a wonderful book, and you know about this sex worker who was found in a, who, who is dying in a bin in Istanbul and it goes through all her memories of her life and what she, how she's got there and how she's arrived there and I, I found it completely mesmerising. Um, I, I, I read it in, I read a lot of books in one go, yeah, I have a very tolerant family, but uh, I couldn't, couldn't put it down, absolutely gripping. It's extraordinary. What I love so much about Elise's writing is 
she is so masterful in the way that she sort of conjures senses. You can feel like the air on your skin in the way that that character does, and you can yeah, she's hear and smell, and it's such yeah. a so it's almost claustrophobic but in a great way. Yeah, it's, it's such a wonderful book. So yes, I, I I love to be I love to be transported, and I really do, I really do. I, I think it's an amazing book, and I'm I'm currently on a, a a mission as well at the moment to try and read all of. Agatha Christie, and I've been tweeting about this. I don't know about, I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, um, but I, I can never get the murderer, ever, ever. <laughs> I, I got, a murder is easy, I did, and even though I've read it before, I've read the Caribbean mystery before, and I did it again and still got it wrong. And even though I know that it's the least likely person, I get the wrong least likely person. And, <laughs> and murder is easy, I did get it, but everyone else, I don't know, anyone, are you, can you get the murderer? No, anyone? Yeah. No? Yeah, you can. So, oh, I bet Daisy can. No, I'm um, the same as you. I'm like, if there's a minor character that's coming yeah. for half a page, two oh, chapters the gardener, in, yeah. I'm like, oh yes, that would make sense. It must have been them. I confront my own failure every day because I know that lots of people on Twitter tell me that they get it straight away, and I just, I just, Agatha Christie bamboozles me every time. But isn't it fun not knowing, having that? Because are you surprised? Every time, because I think that's, I am surprised again, every time. The, I love the, to be. I love surprise. Reward, I, I love surprise. You know, my PhD examiner, uh, she's a marvelous scholar, Ros Ballister, and she said to me, um, she said to me that she. This is shows how disciplined she is about discipline reading. You know what she does? She said to me that she reads the end of a book first, so she's not reading for the plot. So she can read for the themes and the characters. Mm. And every day, I think I need to be like her because I am. I love reading for the plot. I love it. I just get completely gripped and caught up in the plot. And even though I, I, I just can't stop. I don't know how I feel about that. I think I'm much more tempted to do it in a book where I'm sort of struggling a bit, so I can sort of relax. Because sometimes it's more if I don't care so much about what's happening, then it's harder for me to have, sort of have that as a reason to read. I think that's something that people often get confused about with romantic comedies as well, where people are very dismissive about those books. And they're like, well, it's just, it's so obvious, what's going to happen? Like, well, yes, that's the thing, that's what's so satisfying. And I think, you know, possibly the same for lots of people, for, for crime, for Agatha Christie. It's that what is obvious, but how is fascinating. Absolutely. How, how did that gardener do it? We got the, we did, even if we didn't get the right character. Do you have any um, literary crushes, um, counts notwithstanding, or any, <laughs> um, any people in books that you admire or fancy? Um, well, I'm, I mean, I love the Brontes. I love everything about the Brontes. Uh, I, love, I love Emily and Charlotte. So Emily was my... Emily Bronte was my mastermind subject. Uh, they said to me, I said, they said, oh, what do you want to do mastermind on? And I said, oh, I'll, I'll do it on one of my books, like Emma Hamilton. They said, oh, no, 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 you can't do it on one of your books. So, uh, yes. And then I asked for Austin, and they said that that was gone, and Dickens had been done. I think George Eliot had been done, and Charlotte Bronte had been done. And then I, so then I thought, Emily Bronte? And so I did Emily Bronte's my mastermind subject and won mastermind, got the trophy. Unfortunately, my mastermind trophy, it's a bit of a tragedy, really. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was used by a, a, visiting, uh, a visiting small chum 
uh, against my pointless trophy. She bopped them together, and the pointless trophy got a bit chipped. So, uh, but the mastermind trophy is still there. But so I love, but I love Emily, and I love Charlotte, and I love the Brontes. It's quite good to know about the the robustness of various game shows. <laughs> in Top Trumps, mastermind beats all. Well, you know. Uh, you know, I was a bit... Because I was have, very I've excited to, about your point this now victory. Now I was very impressed now, by that. And I've they've invited me back, I've got to win, you know, because <laughs> like, I've broken my trophy. Um, and I love the Brontes. I'm such an admirer of them and their, their efforts so what to is work. it about the Brontes and about Emily that you really respond to? Can you... What, at what point in your life did you sort of meet them? When you... I think I was really very young. I mean, I read... Jane Eyre when I was really far too young, I think, 12 or 13, I think. See, I don't know, because I think Jane Eyre is almost classic YA, because it's so intense. And when you're like 12 oh, yes. and no one understands is, me, read, yes. it's perfect. It's when you need it so to your life. wonderful. And I, I, so I read, so I think that, I, and you, when you go to the parsonage, it's so wonderful to see where they all were and the small, small house and they were all ill and they had their, their ne'er-do-well brother and... There they are, creating these incredible works of literature. And uh, whenever I feel, whenever I'm too lazy to write, I think, yeah, but the Brontes would have done. Yeah, <laughs> It's something that I don't feel as though we talk about enough, that their world was so tiny and they imagined but their imagination enormous. Was so but like, where did that come from? You know, they knew... Like, they didn't know anyone who wasn't related to them, really, and yet they magicked all this up. And I think what is amazing about the Brontes is that how, how they're imaginative right from the early stages, and you look at their early worlds that they created, like Gondal, I mean, they're amazing. These teenage worlds that they created, sort of slight role-playing, slight imaginative words, worlds that they were creating between them, I mean, the and these are completely imaginative, imagined worlds. And how they do that, I think it's absolutely amazing. I think that they are, and this imagination, and then they take it away from the fantasy world and into sort of these novels that are, well, realistic, but mm. still are fantasy. And, and just incredible. I do not want to get too political here, but I can understand that there's a logic to art flourishing during times when the real world is a bit much and you want to escape. So I'm hoping that, you know, some good may come of what's about to come in that sense. Yes, I agree with you. We're all going to live in remote parsonages and with our insufficient food and um, imagine things like the Brontes. Yes, I, yes, exactly, exactly. I'm going to be boring and ask you about um, more fiction, which... I know, I know you've got a lot on. So the, um, the, the current bit, this is, uh, this is non-fiction. Yes, that you're... I am trying to write another novel. So I've written four, five history books. There's um, Emma Hamilton, uh, Queen Victoria, uh, Empress Josephine, Elizabeth II, and Mary Queen of Scots most recently. And I've written um, four novels. So the first one was The Pleasures of Men. Uh, and if you Google that, you get all kinds of results. <laughs> uh, um, then, safe search. Yeah, people. safe search. You know, Estee Lauder's Pleasures of Men is about the only decent, and my book, obviously, the appropriate one. That was about Victorian murder. And I think, obviously, authors don't tend to love Amazon reviews for so many reasons, because, you, you know, especially when you get one that says, yeah, 
yeah, no marks because the packaging was bad. You're like, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it or, was late. Yeah, no marks because it wasn't prime. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I got one on Amazon that said, um, oh, I've, um, I've seen uh, Kate Williams on the TV and she seems like such a nice person on TV. But after reading this book, <laughs> if I saw her coming towards me in the street, I would cross over to get away from her because <laughs> of my crazy warped mind. Uh, and I, 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 I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a very safe person. You know, children, cats, safe with me. But uh, And that was my first one, Victoria Murder. And then I wrote a trilogy. I mean, if it was me, I would get that. I'd get someone to make that into a cross stitch and I'd hang it above my bed, there of you. <laughs> my favourite blurb. Yeah, I, cr I cross over to avoid Kate Williams. <laughs> She's not as nice as she seems on those programmes. And then... Um, then I wrote a trilogy, Storms of War, um, Edge of the Fall. Uh, Storms of War about 1940, about the Great War, Edge of the Fall about the family in the 1920s. And that's what I find so and interesting, that you can sort of, you know, there's such an adwart moving yeah. from, you it's know, it's the sort of... It's interesting writing a trilogy, because you know, you have century, to... But also right into the 20th century. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm always in my time machine. Yeah, it's really interesting writing a trilogy, <laughs> because you just have to realise when you... Because obviously when you write a, a standalone, you just write it. Mm. Uh, and when you write a trilogy, you have to make sure that you have, are going to have some characters to do something in the future. Did you always <laughs> know it was going to be a trilogy? Yes. So I had, I do have friends who write trilogies uh, more frequently than I do, who'd write them all out in one go, like 300,000 words in one go, and then split them up. And so they know that they Richardson have the characters. Style. Yeah, all the words. But I didn't do that. But luckily, I did have enough characters to... Um, be placed in important situations in the 20s and the 30s. So I, so I did um, that in the, 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 the 30s, and now I'm, I'm writing a new novel, uh, which is very early stages, which is about the empire. So that's a very early stages. And I'm, tr I'm th thinking about a, so a the comic, empire comic so YA novel as well. The Victorian, Victorian times. Em the, the, uh, India and the empire in the Victorian times. That's very early stages. So, um, comic YA, yes. though, that sounds brilliant. Very comic YA. But I write... Uh, is my... that contemporary or is that... It is contemporary. That is ma that's modern, yes. Oh, the... that sounds great. But how much can you tell us, if mm, anything? Not very Super... much. Yeah, not very much. Like, I've said too much. I mean, but it's amazing. It's, um, you know, I write my history books because I do the research and then I type, you know, you should use a computer in the archive or occasionally a notebook and then type it up and work, usually... Occasionally, very occasionally, I write history books by hand, but usually I'm using uh, a computer to write my history books. But with the novels, I write a lot of it by hand, and I have very bad handwriting. So there's two problems with my notebooks. Is number one, it's a hostage to fortune. You're like, oh, don't let me lose this on the train to Reading. Don't let me lose this on the train to Reading. And also, uh, sometimes I look back and can't read my handwriting <laughs> as to what I've written. Um, so maybe I'm a bit like Sarah because I can't actually read my first draft. But um, I find I find writing by hand incredibly liberating. And I wrote uh, the pleasures pleasures of men. Yeah, my first novel. I wrote a it wasn't my first novel to, to be written. It was my first novel to be published, you know. Yeah. That's what it often is, isn't it? it? A there were other ones that I just didn't feel had worked. Uh, but this one really overwhelmed me and absorbed me, and I couldn't stop writing it. But I wrote it by hand. I find there's something slightly more freeing about sometimes writing by hand because um, writing on the computer automatically seems official, and writing mm. by hand, you just think, so this is just me and my crazy, crazy mind. 
Were you writing kind of anywhere and everywhere? Mm. And you'd just be thinking about Pretty things frenzied. and yeah. grab your notebook yes. out of your bag Felt something a bit go. with, with, the, with the, the novel. Um, uh, yeah, I'm writing my new novel in that, uh, in, in, the, in the kind of frenzied style. Yes. Frenzied style. Yeah, I, love I like it. that. I love it. I love it. I, like, I, 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 love, I'm, I mean, I love, when I, I love to read and I love to write. And sometimes I'm, you know, my, 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 the world of my head and my writing, it's, it's a world that sometimes is terrifying and worries me, but sometimes it's a world that I, 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 I you know, want to get on the plane and go there every morning. Always up for getting out of the washing machine box. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, need a new washing machine, actually, because ours is broken. So maybe we actually make a new box. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See if yeah. it works Get this the time. pipe cleaners out. Yeah, exactly. Get my old craft. Uh, we're going to have some questions. Oh, over here. Hello. Hello. A microphone is coming to you. Thank you. I'm, I'm just curious to understand how you move from your creative and wonderful mind to a discipline of filming and uh, making documentaries, what, what kind of shift do you have to make mentally and creatively to do that? Yes, I, I, I think you're quite right. I do have a, different things that I do. So I write history books, I write fiction books, I you know, have my university job at the University of Reading, and I do TV, and I do TV documentaries, and I do TV news, and I do talks at festivals. So I have a kind of varied career, and I'm very grateful for it. I think I'm in, you know, I don't think as a schoolgirl in Midlands I ever thought I'd be able to do this professionally. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for what I do. And, it, and But I, I like the variety, actually. I, I do like the variety that sometimes, because obviously writing is a very lone endeavor until we give it to the publisher and suddenly you know it's a different thing uh, but writing is a lone endeavor and I think it's, it's sometimes good to have the variety um, of going out and working with a documentary crew and or writing a doc your, your, your pieces to camera for the documentary and so I think it's a, a really good discipline for me to vary it and I think although Antonio Fraser who I had the incredible privilege of interviewing this morning absolutely amazing and oh yes we didn't even get to that did, did anyone here go that fabulous yeah. excellent and she we, we performed did the world premiere of her play uh, Molly Stewart and Betsy Tudor that she wrote the short play in which I was Elizabeth I and she was Mary Queen of Scots and it was amazing and I you know I was blown away and and, and she you know she said you know that because obviously she had six children, you know, that mothers don't, she said, the mothers don't have time for writer's block, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, I do have writer's block, I do, there are block, books that don't work, or books halfway through that don't work, or books I'm going very slowly on, but I do think that the fact is that I'm, I, 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 there are some days in which I literally cannot write because I'm doing something else, I'm working with the students, I'm, 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 at, I'm at the university, or I'm, filming so it, 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 it's a good break for me because then you think then you next morning you think oh, I really want to get, mm. get back to it. It, it it does it does it does it does work well for me and I I, I you know, obviously f filming is a process that's so different but it, but it, that I love the sort of creativity and expressiveness about it and I 
I, I you know, the research, the research that I do informs the filming that I do, and I, I think they work together. So I not to put words into your mouth. I'm wondering whether, you know, when filming, there are so many people and so many practical things and so much sort of juggling to do that whether you just really appreciate it when it can just be you and your notepad yeah. and just you and your computer. I love them both. Yeah, and you know, and obviously, yeah, filming. I've just got a series about the secrets of the royals on Channel Five, and they, last week they made me eat a crock and which in celebration of the Henry VIII's obsession with meat feasts, in which, you know, because the Tudors, they'd like to, like, you know, get a chicken and stuck it, stuck it in a goose and then <laughs> stuck it in a sheep and then stick it in a cow and then cook the whole thing on a spit. And, of course, it was a Little disgusting. they're doing a Christmas special, five ninety nine. Disgusting. <laughs> because it didn't really, obviously, you would think it wouldn't work because every type of meat so was a different it? time. So is that that's called a, a cock and treese? No, that, that's what they do. But the cock and treese, we did a simpler version. That one's kind of like some giant rainbow cake of meat. And this one <laughs> is, um, is when you get a cock and treese, you... The, front is a pig and the back is a chicken and you tie them together and cook them and that's what I had to eat thanks Channel 5. Was uh, it delicious? No not in the slightest <laughs> not in the because of course the, the chicken the pig cooks much slower than the chicken uh, oh. and it looks so weird and this was that was because Henry VIII and you know the Tudors they didn't the vegetables were really for the lower classes so they had to eat meat and loads of it and they, were, they had weird meat, I mean, they ate dolphin, but they liked to eat these crazy things. So, they like, so their idea of fun is tying two animals together. Uh, and it, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure it's come back yet. I don't know if it will, you know, <laughs> head, of a, head of a cow and back of a sheep. Mm. So I had to eat that. So the, we, we went to the National Archives doing some wonderful things about the royal kitchens. And next week, I think it's, I think it's royal doctors. And, um, you know, we found some, they found an amazing document from Victoria. Queen Victoria's, um, uh, Queen Victoria's doctor, uh, who, who, all about her, what we call now postnatal psychosis. Absolutely mind blowing. That so when can we watch this? This is, I think, I think doctors are, I'm doing next week. I think it's a series at the moment. And Channel 4, Channel oh, so it's being filmed. broadcast it. now. And yeah, and I've done it. So yes, yeah, so because obviously Victoria, to the, it was like perfect, happy mother, perfect childhood. It's all marvelous, perfect life. And that was the image that was given to the nation and the empire. But behind it, Victoria has this incredible postnatal psychosis. It's amazing to read her doctor write about it. She says, he says that Victoria, she sees the moles on people's faces at court and thinks they're holes that worms are coming out of. Oh, my god! she's become so obsessed with death, and she sees coffins going past. And that, of course, is completely antithetical mm. to the vision we have of the young queen. Yeah. And the perfect, perfect domesticity. Uh, and the doctor, that's an amazing source. So, so I, love the, I love the research. So, um, yes, I, I, I feel that, you know, the research is a great privilege, and the filming is a great, great privilege. And um, You can I'm just hear it in be, your voice, I'm lucky, the way I'm, you animate. I'm lucky, to be in the, I'm lucky to be in the time machine every day. And... Um, and I'm just, um, you know, got this book to do, so I'm just hoping that there's no ma no major royal events to come because <laughs> I, <laughs> they're not going to spring anything on me because you never know what they're going to spring on you. Yes, so I was busy with the Supreme helped. Court last week that was, oh, and, and its impact on the monarchy and what it means mm. for the relationship between the Queen and Prime Minister. So I have to be ready for news as well, which I love. So we can sort of, you know, if international events can just calm down for six months, <laughs> yes. it could be a bit the of a Queen just time. doesn't spring anything on me. <laughs> um, I've got carried away then. I think we've got time for another question. Hiya. And Hi. just thought, following on from that, when you are making your documentaries, is it 
always subject matters that you have come up with and, and kind of put to producers and some a passion of your own? Or is it the other way around in that you're approached um, about a certain subject matter and then you kind of go away and, and, and work on it? You know, how does that work? It both happens. What, what I tend to find is that you know, things are very cyclical, is that I say I want to do something and pitch something and everyone says no to me. And then sort of three years later, they come back saying, oh, we've got this idea. <laughs> so, but, um, but, but I mean, so it, tend to, it does tend to be, tend to be both of them. Um, but uh, most of the ones I've done recently, they've all been something that I want, really wanted to do, which is really marvellous. Uh, and there, there are some things that I really want to get on TV that I still have failed at, and I hope I will eventually um can I'd, you tell us all that jinx it well i'd i'd love to i'd love to get i'd love to get a series on about female pirates i think the female pirates Ooh, yes, of the 17th century and 18th century like Anne bonny Take and really fascinating and whether or not i'm really uh, i think Gronia o'malley is an incredible character she's often seen as the irish pirate pirate queen but she was a great landowner in ireland and um you know irish history is very much excluded from 16th century history uh, and, and and she, Mary Queen of Scots, of course, was desperate for a meeting with Elizabeth I. Never got it, but Gronia did. But and she was uh, she was allowed to take her own dagger in. She was allowed to take her own knife in Ooh. with a meeting with Elizabeth I. Uh, amazing. So she's an incredible character. I love. I did this TV uh, radio program called The Pitch, and they said, "What do you think would make a great movie?" And I said, "Gronia, Gronia, Gronia should make a great movie." But they said. And their judgment, they, 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 they judged them, they, the Radio 4 uh, expert panel judged them, and they said, yes, it's a good idea, it's a good idea, but there's a lot of sea battle scenes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd, I'd love to get a TV show off about female pirates. And it, I, I, you know, if, I, if I could you know, dress up and be on a pirate ship and that kind of thing, I, I, so I think they, there were lots of things I'd love to be on TV, and I, I'm, but I'm, I, think the, I think the viewership would love female pirates. I think they would, yeah. But like, well. yeah, so it's... it's um, Wonder, but of course, with news, you know, I just respond to what happens. So <laughs> I just go and hopefully I've got something to, yeah, have something to say. Everybody, go on the internet, Google some production companies. Hello, I was wondering if you'd consider making a documentary about female pirates. Yeah. Together, we, we can, can make this happen. We can put a, I mean, the odd male can come in if they want. Yeah. We can have a few men. I'm imagining them actually sort of coming in on a rope, like swinging, literally <laughs> swashbuckling. Um, I guess that's all the questions. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Huge thank you thank to you. Kate. Let's give her another round of applause. Huge thanks to Kate. And do tweet her at Kate Williams Me if you recognise her ant book. Kate is a prolific writer and has written so many brilliant books that I'd recommend starting with Rival Queens, The Betrayal of Mary, Queen of Scots to find out a bit more about what she was talking about on this podcast. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, Shelf Obsessives. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests, and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you've got any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this from Virginia Woolf. This is an important book, the critic assumes, because it deals with war. This is an insignificant book because it deals with the feelings of women in a drawing room. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.